Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our new class as part of this fall, as part of this fall semester. Um, if you are here to learn with Rabbi Silber, you are in the right place. And Rabbi Silber, if I may give, would you like me to give an introduction, or would you like to dive in? I think we can just dive into the topic. Um, okay, so can welcome everyone, and um, so the topic is Shemitah as represented in the Bible. And uh, just say a few words about Shemitah by way of introduction, the sabbatical year, which in outside of the land of Israel, doesn't have very much practical ramification. In Israel, actually, it's a subject of a lot of uh, discussion. Uh, for those who observe the Shemitah, which is not a simple mitzvah to observe at all, uh, some find it incredibly difficult to observe, and there's been certain uh, approaches or solutions to try to somehow limit the difficulty of observing Shemitah. That itself is an interesting topic in its own right from a variety of perspectives. But what I would say is that it turns out that this commandment of the sabbatical year and that which is relevant to the sabbatical year plays a very prominent role in the uh, Torah. One might say that it is um, not that we want to assign a particular weight to any observance, but within the Torah, within the biblical narrative, it plays a very central role. Uh, it's a mitzvah, for example, just by way of uh, description, it's a mitzvah that the Torah in two different places and referring to two different aspects of this sabbatical year, and they're radically different, and we'll hopefully get to that in a later session. But in both of these aspects, whether it relates to the Shemitah of the, of the land, which is primary, or whether it relates in the book of Dvarim to what they call Shemitah Ksafim, to uh, the annulment of loans, in each of those two cases, the Torah says that don't say to yourself, it's too difficult to observe. It's possible to observe it. The very fact that the Torah goes out of its way to say, don't think, that it's too difficult to observe means that it's difficult to observe. The Torah is aware of that. I think the rabbinic texts are equally aware of it. So that itself is interesting and extremely unusual that the Torah in two different places goes out of its way to assure the, uh, the reader of the Torah, the one who seems guided by the Torah, to understand that yes, it is difficult and B, a, it's difficult, and B, it's possible. So um, that's an interesting, uh, immediately an interesting uh, fact about, about Shemitah. So I wanted to jump right into where Shemitah appears in the Torah, which itself is, I think, is quite interesting. And I'll stop periodically to take comments or questions, whether they're in the chat. If you want to speak up, just unmute yourself and speak up. So we'll begin now with our. Um, discussion about where Shemitah appears in the Torah. And the first place that Shemitah appears in the Torah, and one that is not solely the prominent place that it appears, is in the, uh, in the section of the Torah, which really begins at the end of chapter 20 of the book of Shemot. Let's remind ourselves that chapter 20 of the book of Exodus is where we have the Ten Commandments. So after the people hear the Ten Commandments, 
they hear God's voice, the thunder, the lightning, all the uh, pyrotechnics that surround Sinai. The people go to Moshe and say to him, it's, you know, we don't want to hear God's voice anymore. We're afraid lest we die. Moshe says, don't be afraid. I'll don't be afraid. God is raising you up or testing you. In any event, uh, the people want Moshe himself to be God's uh, intermediary and to give them to continue to speak to them. So that's what happens towards the very end of chapter 20. If you scroll down, you'll see the end of chapter 20. Uh, keep going down more. The um, uh, people stand from a distance. Moshe goes up to the mountain. And God speaks to Moshe in verse number 19 and says, um, you've seen I've spoken to you from heaven. And then God continues to speak about the first thing God says after the Ten Commandments is do not make or tasuni ti do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gold. One might say this is, in a sense, an embellishment, an enhancement of the first of the Ten Commandments. It should be now, I'm the God that took you out of Egypt. Have no God other than me. And now God continues to speak after the revelation at Sinai. God speaking to Moshe. Moshe is going to convey this to the people. So it's interesting to note that the first thing God says is don't make any gods of silver or gold because we know that before Moshe comes down the mountain, what the people do is they make, they make a ego zahav, they make a golden calf. So it's a violation, not just the first words of the Ten Commandments, but it's a violation of the first thing that God says after the Ten Commandments, which Moshe will convey to the people. The people are afraid to hear God's voice. That's the first thing God says. If we keep scrolling down, what's the next thing that God says? In verse 21, so the next verse talks about how to serve God. If you make for me mizbach adamata, so we make for me an altar of earth and sacrifice it on your burnt offerings, wherever I cause my name to be mentioned, I will come and bless you. If you make an altar of stones, don't make them of hewn stone. Don't don't hew the stones with your steel with a sword. That would be a desecration of the altar. That's verse number 22. And the next verse in verse 23 continues with a scroll down, continues with um, another rule. Do not ascend my altar by steps and your nakedness may not be exposed upon it. So in other words, it begins with rules. First of all, there's one God for us, no other gods, no images no gold, no silver, and the manner of service. And then God continues to speak. That's the first thing I said. And now I continue. Now these are the rules. Now this is interesting. This which starts in chapter 21, verse number six, goes all the way through chapter 23. So we'll get to that later, but let's start with the first of the Mishpatim. The first, our topic is Shemitah. The first of these rules that is set before you, number one rule, when you get beyond God and service of God, the first rule relates to the, to the slave, the Evid Ivri and the Yama Ivriya, the Hebrew slave. What does the Torah say about the Hebrew slave? 
The Torah presumes slavery. Let's start with that. It presumes it. But it, it, it wants to ameliorate. It wants to limit it. One might even argue that it's moving towards abolishing it. But it doesn't yet abolish it, but it limits it. And the first limitation is years of service. First thing, first of the Mishpatim, I keep emphasizing how important this section is, and we'll see that. It's a critical section of the Torah. The first rule is, if you purchase a Hebrew slave, a man, male slave, the slave works for six years. In the seventh year, the slave goes free. So slavery is limited to six years, that's number one. And the Torah has more rules. If he comes in un unmarried, he leaves unmarried. If he comes in married with children, when he leaves, wife and children leave with him. Fine. Then it says, what about if the master gave him a slave to live with and produce children, they stay with the master. Okay, but he, but he himself leaves. And if he has his own wife and children, they leave with him. It's not a perfect world, probably as most of us see it but it's a movement away from full slavery. And then finally, what if the slave says, I don't want to leave. I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I don't want to leave. I'm very happy here. And the Torah allows for it. The Torah permits it. However, in order for the slave to be allowed to stay, what appears to be forever, the rabbinic tradition limits this as well, as we'll see later, not tonight. Um, but it says, then you, then the master approaches, it says Elohim, which could be interpreted as God, some kind of an oracle, or in the rabbinic tradition, a judge, you approach a say the judge, and then he is brought to, he is brought to the door or the doorpost, and is the master will pierce the ear of the slave, it's called Ritzia. He then is a slave forever, which the Talmud limits as well, but okay. So this last piece is interesting. What is the idea of piercing the ear? What's the idea of bringing him to the door or the doorpost and piercing his ear? And it would appear, I think, that what the Torah is suggesting is that the slave in asking not to leave the slave and asking to remain with the master is doing something inappropriate. The Torah allows it. Torah allows it, yes, but it's inappropriate because remember that this set of laws is in the book of Exodus and the book of Exodus is all about slaves going free. And in fact, the ritual before which the slave could not go free was the bringing of the carbon Pesach, the Paschal sacrifice. And the Paschal sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice, says the Torah, is put upon the lintel and upon the doorposts. And after you put the blood on the lintel and the doorposts, doorpost. and then that's what allows you to go free. And you walk through the door, as it were. And this is a person who could go free. His six years of servitude are up, his time is up. He refuses to walk through the door. He refuses to walk through the, the mezuzah, the doorposts. So as if he's, he's stuck by the door. So his ear is pierced by the door. 
and then he's a slave forever. The Torah allows for it, but the Torah looks down upon it. In the words of the Talmud, the ear that heard it, Harsinai, you shall have no other God but me. And you are my servants. I'm the God who freed you, right? I took you out of Egypt. And you want to remain a slave to a human being? Okay, the Torah permits it. He has a reason he wants to stay. He loves his wife, his kids, he loves his master. He has a security of slavery, but it's not right. And the reason I mention that is because this verse, which talks about the slave who refuses to leave and the ritzia that accompanies it, can be seen as emblematic of all these verses that fundamentally what the Torah is saying is, we allow slavery, but we don't really approve of it. We don't think it's a good thing. So we limited it. The limitation is six years in the seventh year, you go free. That's as far as the male slave is concerned. And now the, then the Torah turns its attention to the female slave. If a man sells his daughter as a slave, a ma, a female slave, she does not go out as the male slave does. And here beginning in verse number eight, the Torah deals with the female slave differently. Fundamentally in the Torah, yes, a man is allowed to sell his daughter as a slave. Yes, but what the Torah says is the one who purchases the daughter as a slave is instructed to treat her not as a slave, but to marry her, to treat her as a wife. He's not allowed, first of all, to sell her to anybody else. He either marries her for himself or sets her aside for his son and can marry her. And in which case, if they do marry her, she has the same rights of any married woman. It's in this parsha in a few verses that the Torah will spell out from the Torah's perspective, the rights of the married woman, what the, what the husband has to provide for his wife. He can't mistreat her. And if he doesn't, uh, if he doesn't allow her to be redeemed, he doesn't marry her himself, and he doesn't have his son marry her. And a couple of verses later, then she simply goes out without, and she works, it sounds like she finishes her six years, and then she goes out. But the six years of slavery are what we would say is a bidiyevit. That's not what the Torah wants. The Torah wants, in the case of women, to eliminate slavery and to transform it into marriage. So that's how this, that's how we begin. I would point out in, this, in these preliminary remarks, not just that the Torah begins with slavery and the limitation upon slavery for men and women, but it also spends more verses on slavery and the rule of the Eved Ivri and the Amma Ivriyah. It spends much more ink on, these, on this particular rule and any of the other rules. And you have all of chapter 21, 22, and 23. Most of 23 are rules. And yet the, the most attention the Torah pays is to the Evan and the Amah, which makes sense in the context, given the fact that these rules, this particular set of rules, it's, it's not a comprehensive set. There are other sets in the Torah, but this particular set is embedded in the book of Exodus the book of the freeing of the slave. So the Torah begins with speaking, to, in a sense, to those who have been freed and speaking about slavery. It seems to limit it 
one might even go so far as to say not approve of it. It does not eliminate it, but it moves towards, it's moving in that direction. Okay, now, before I take comments or questions, why have I spent time on uh, the beginning, the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21? Because I wanted to jump now, there's a long list of rules because when we have spent in the past the entire semester on these rules and more. But let's jump to the end of the rules. And that's in chapter 23. Let's say, let's turn back, let's turn forward to chapter 23. Um, so chapter 23 is, let's scroll, let's look, that's okay. This is a set of rules. It talks about mistreating the stranger. It talks about all kinds of other rules, false witnesses in the beginning of 23. And then in chapter 23, verse number nine, verse, after verse nine, it says, do not oppress the stranger. You know how the stranger feels. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. Earlier in these set of rules, it also mentions the stranger, not oppressing the stranger, to love the stranger. And then in verse number 10, in these mishpatim, mishpatim we usually think of as rules about how people should behave with each other. Mitzvot ben adam but here, the Torah turns its attention to a different, it's also included in the Mishpatim, but suddenly we have a different rule. Verse number 10. For six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. You work the land for six years. In verse number 11, but regarding the seventh year, what we call Shemitah, the seventh year, Tishmetena Unetasha, Tishmetena. Here they translate, let it rest and lie fallow. Natashta, I would say, lie fallow, or I would say, abandon it, actually. Let it rest, abandon the land. What does it mean to abandon the land? So the Torah continues in verse number 11, V'yachu evyonei amecha, so the poor people of your nation, of your people, can eat. Vietram, and the remainder, tochal chayat hasadeh. And the animals may also eat of the field. So you're not to take the produce from the field. In the seventh year, you leave the produce in the field, and you leave it there, you abandon it, in order that poor people can take it. And what the poor people don't take, the animals will eat. And not only your field, so too for your vineyards and your olive groves. In short, you work the field for six years, but in the seventh year, the field rests. And the purpose of it is made very clear. The poor people will eat of it. And the previous verse is interesting. The previous verse says, do not oppress the stranger. You know how the stranger feels. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. And the verse after that talks about Shemitah, the sabbatical year. Normally when people talk about Shemitah, they don't run to Exodus chapter 23, verse 11. They run to Vayikra chapter 25, we'll get there. That's where there's an extensive discussion of Shemitah. But it's first mentioned in the Torah in chapter 23, verse number 11. 
The next verse is also interesting for our purposes. The next verse, which is verse number 13, that's interesting. The Torah says, be on guard, be careful to observe everything that I tell you. Hashem, let's say back up one, back up, back up, back up one verse. Verse number 13. Sheshit 12. Sheshit yomim ta'asem ma'asecha uvayom ha'shvi'i tishbot. Says the Torah, work for six days, rest on the seventh day. Uman yonuach sharcha v'chamorecha v'yinafesh benamotcha v'hagea. This is a mitzvah. Verse number 12 is, Shab- is Shabbat. You work for six days and you rest on the seventh. Why? So here the Torah gives the reason in order that your animals may rest and, and the, um, and, and the uh, your bondsmen, your slaves, and the stranger may rest as well. So it's interesting that the Torah's reason for the observance of Shabbat in verse number 12 seems very similar to the Torah's reasons for the observance of Shemitah in verse number 11. Observe the Shemitah, work for six years, seventh year and don't work, so that the poor people and the animals may benefit from the land. Next verse. What about the week, not the years, the week? You work for six days, on the seventh day you rest, on the seventh day, not only you rest, but the animals rest, your slaves rest, everybody rests. So here you see straight up that the Torah seems to be drawing, first of all, a deep connection between Shemitah on one hand and Shabbat on the other. In fact, later the Torah will call Shemitah Shabbat of the land. And what's interesting is beyond this, the beginning of the next verse, observe everything that I told you to observe. And don't, Hashem Elohim Achirim Lota, do not mention any other God. Lo Yishama Alpicha. And then the Torah in verse number 14 talks about particular observances of the festivals. The three observances of the festivals. And these are the festivals where, where you make the, the pilgrimage, pilgrimages to God's temple. And this essentially, these rules about the pilgrimage. These verses 14, 15, 16, 17, these are the last of the Mishpatim. So let's just reflect for a moment upon these rules, these Mishpatim. And there are two points to be made. The first is, in my view, that we have over here a kind of envelope structure. The Mishpatim begat the after the giving of the Torah, after the Ten Commandments. First, we have statements about I'm God. I'm the only God, have no other gods, have no silver gods, have no golden gods. And then the way you serve God, you serve God, God's altar, which God will choose us to be, wherever, wherever I will be, though God has a place, and the mode of service, no nakedness, no promiscuity, etc. You can't even have a golden altar, says an altar, an earthen altar. Um, that's how, how it began. And then you have the Mishpatim. And at the end, you seem to have a very similar thing. You have the Mishpatim, the last of which seems to be the 
Shemitah and the Shabbat, the six days and resting on the seventh day, and the six years of work and resting on the seventh year. And the first of the Mishpatim was the Mishpatim of the Evan, the slave, the male and female slaves who work maximally for six years. Female slave might work much less, but the male slave maximally six years and gets rest on the seventh. Followed at the end of chapter 20, and for the Mishpatim with rules about God. Do not mention any other God. Do not mention any other God. And finally, the way you serve God. You make the pilgrimage to the place in which God is found, which is parallel to uh, the altar, the appearance of the altar at the very end of chapter 20. So that's number one is, you see that the framing of these set of rules begins with, the first of the Mishpah team is this Evid, works for six years and is freed in the seventh. And the last of the Mishpah team is the Shemitah, the six years, and you don't work the land on the seventh, combined with Shabbat, six days of work, you don't work on the seventh. That's the first point of interest. But here's the second point of interest. And that doesn't appear actually in chapter 23, but it does appear in the beginning of chapter 24. So we have to remember that all of these rules, all of them, the people don't hear directly from God. Because remember at the end of chapter 20, the people told Moshe we're afraid to hear God's voice. We get can't, it's too frightening. And Moshe tells the people, okay, that's fine. It's true. It's an awesome experience. Then Moshe is summoned up the mountain. God tells all these things to Moshe. And Moshe is going to come down the mountain and tell the people. So Moshe comes down the mountain in chapter 24. If you look at chapter 24, you will see that when Moshe comes down the mountain, I guess scroll down to 24, keep going, keep going. Yes, here it is. You got it, right? Look, but Moshe wrote, this is it. Moshe wrote down all the words of God. He puts up 12 pillars, sacrifice, right? They bring sacrifices. Um, keep reading, keep going down a little more. See some more. Yes, verse number seven. Moses took, Vayikach Sefer Habrit, and Moses took the book of the covenant. And he read it to the people. And the people said, Everything God has spoken, we will do and we will, we will accept. What does mean? There are various interpretations of the one I like best is everything that God says now we will do and Vinishma in the future. Anything that God will say to us in the future, we will also accept. Here, the famous Naseh Vinishma, the acceptance of the Torah, is found in chapter 24, verse number seven, in response not to the Ten Commandments alone, in response to the Book of the Covenant. What is the Book of the Covenant? Answer, the Book of the Covenant are these Mishpatim that Moshe wrote down earlier. He says he came down the mountain. He writes them down. He reads them to the people. He then takes this book of the covenant after he's read it to the people. And the people respond and say, Nasev Nishma. 
So the covenant, this is not just rules. These, these are covenantal rules. The covenant consisted of two parts, I would, I would say. The Ten Commandments are covenant. The tablets are called Luchot Habrit, the tablets of the covenant. But it doesn't end with the Ten Commandments. All of these rules, beginning with the very end of chapter 20 till the middle of chapter 23, all of these rules are part of what the Torah calls the Book of the Covenant. And here's my point. At this point, I'll stop and take comments and questions. If these rules are the covenantal rules, there will be more. Not seven Ishma. What God will tell us in the future, we also accept. But the covenant is primarily related to these rules. And we look at the way that the rules, we look at, the, at these rules in general. We're not doing that now. And we say, what is at the many rules? What is at the center of the rules? And one of the things that's at the center of the rules, that is the importance of it, is what appears in the beginning and the end, the framing. And it's framed with three rules. One is the rule of the Evet, the slave. That makes sense. Moshe is speaking to the, the former slaves and limiting slavery and saying, you shouldn't ever want to be a slave. You should want to leave. Okay, if you want to stay, you could stay. You shouldn't. And it concludes with the last rules, Shabbat, covenantal commandment of Shabbat, and Shemitah. And we see the, the similarity between those three. They're all about six and seven. They're all about, yes, you work for six years, of course. Seventh year, you don't work. You don't work the land. Six days of work, yes. Not on the seventh day. Slavery, okay, six years. Seventh year, you're free. So what does this highlight for us? It highlights for us the degree to which Shemitah should be understood as a covenantal mitzvah. I want to add to that in a minute, but before that, I'll take comments or questions. In chat, or speak up, unmute yourself and speak up, please. And if you're following along on Facebook, also feel free to ask questions. If there are no questions, I'll continue. I mean, doesn't it? No, no comments or questions at this point? Okay. Feel free to talk up if you have comments or questions. Okay. This, um, this relationship between Shabbat and Shemitah is very important just to, um, to emphasize this more. The text that we started with is in the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus is about freedom. It's about leaving Egypt. It's about leaving slavery behind. And it's about connecting to God, becoming, one might say, God's servants. And in the book of Exodus, Sefer Shemot, there's one mitzvah that stands out in the book of Exodus. And that mitzvah, obviously, is the mitzvah of Shabbat, the observance of, this, of, of Shabbat, because it appears in many places. It appears prominently in the Ten Commandments. It's the force of the Ten Commandments. It appears, of course, in the uh, story of the man, where the man is falling from heaven, and the people are enjoined from collecting the man on the seventh day. God has given you the Sabbath. Uh, it appears twice in the Torah, in conjunction with building the Mishkan, both in the beginning of the instruction to build the Mishkan, uh, at chapter 31, after the instructions are given, 
the rule of Shabbat is given, and then given again in the beginning of Exodus chapter 35, before the actual construction of the Mishkan. And on top of all that, on top of those four places where it appears in the book of Shemot, it also appeared actually in Egypt. Because you remember when Moshe goes to Paro and says to Paro, back in chapter five of Exodus, people want to serve God in the desert. And Paro says, there's so many people working, you would cause them to, to cease their labor, tashibitu, Shabbat, you would give them a Shabbat. We don't operate that way in Mitzrayim. When you work for Pharaoh, there's no Shabbat, there's no rest, there's no day of rest. So Pharaoh is the one who actually forbids the observance of Shabbat. And one might say that when you work for God, then you get the Shabbat. It would appear from the Torah that since the Torah twice emphasizes Shabbat in conjunction with the Mishkan, it would appear that one possibility is the Torah saying, yes, build God's temple, but not on Shabbat. Shabbat has its own special sanctity, and you don't work on Shabbat. And that enhances the work you do during the rest of the week. It gives it perhaps meaning. So Shabbat is the covenantal mitzvah, uh, certainly of the book of Exodus, but the Torah has aligned the Shemitah with Shabbat. Shemitah is the Shemitah, the seventh year. Shabbat is the seventh day. So this further reinforces the centrality of Shemitah. Okay, that's the first point I wanted to make. This is all by way of introduction. Now let's turn our attention to the second place that Shemitah appears in the Torah. It appears four times in the Torah. The rest two are very interesting. We won't get there today, but let's get to the second place where it appears. And of course, that is in chapter 25 of the book of Ayikra. Ayikra 25. And it begins famously with the verse, God spoke to Moshe on Mount Sinai, on Har Sinai. And then God begins to speak and to instruct. When you come into the land, the land shall rest as a set. The land shall observe a Sabbath unto God. It's very striking the way the Torah formulates it. It's almost as if the land is a person. The land has to observe Shabbos. Shabbos is God's day. I want the land to observe God's day. Striking formulation. So the Torah calls this mitzvah of the land, Shabbat. Bishavta, Shabbat Hashem. Then the Torah spells it out. Sheish shanim tizra sodecha. Bishesh shanim tizmor kamecha. Again, six years you may sow your field. Six years you may prune your, your vineyards and gather in the produce. But, uvashanah hashviit, Shabbat, Shabbaton yelaret, Shabbat Hashem. Torah emphasizes the seventh year, Shabbat Shabbaton, Sabbath of Sabbaths, a Sabbath unto God. You're not allowed to plant your field, you're not allowed to prune your vineyard. And the Torah continues. Says the Torah, don't read the Sphiach, the translate aftergrowth. Don't gather the grapes, etc. 
It's a year of complete rest for the land. And the Torah continues. Next verse. Keep down. Scroll down. That's it. So it says during this sabbatical year, the land will be there for eating for the people, for the stranger, etc. And in verse number seven, and for the animals. So these two verses are similar to, virtually identical to the verses that we saw in chapter 23 of the book of Exodus, in the book of the covenant. And the Torah repeats it in chapter 25 of the book of Ayekra. Now, the next set of verses lead into a second interesting topic, that of the Jubilee year, which is a fascinating topic. And we'll, maybe we'll deal with that next week. But I wanted to back up a second and to go back to these first chapter 25. Chapter 25 began famously, it says, God spoke to Moshe at Mount Sinai. And the commentaries are actually bothered by that verse. Um, this is by Yikra 25. So in Vayikra 25, it says, if you back up a bit, it says, God spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai. And the commentaries are bothered. Why in verse number one, it says, God spoke to Moshe at Mount Sinai. They're bothered for two reasons. First of all, because presumably everything God is saying is at Mount Sinai. But secondly, they're bothered by a different problem, which is that in the book of Vayikra, typically when it says God spoke to Moses in the book of Vayikra, typically, it's God speaks to Moses from the Mishkan, which is the book of Vayikra, the Olamoe, the tent of meeting. So why suddenly over here, God spoke to Moshe at Mount Sinai. In the words of the Midrash that Rashi cites, Ma'inyan Shmita Eitzohar Sinai. Why when it comes to Shmita, does the Torah mention Mount Sinai? And here we have a very interesting dispute, disagreement, between Rashi and the Ramban as to what the answer is. So I'm gonna, at this point, talk about the Ramban. Rashi is also very interesting, and we'll get to Rashi and what Rashi's getting at in a later session. They're all together four sessions. This is by way of introduction to Shemitah, to highlight the great significance of Shemitah in the Torah. And the Ramban puts forward a fascinating idea. It's an idea that I've mentioned over the years many times in my classes because I think it's very important and because it's something I actually thought of myself many, many years ago before I read the Ramban. What the Ramban says is this. The Ramban says that actually we have already encountered Shemitah. We encountered Shemitah in the book of Exodus chapter 23. And in fact, I would add, it's virtually identical verses. Don't work the seventh year so the poor people can enjoy the benefits of the land and the animals. And that's exactly what it says over here. So the Rahman says, why does the Torah repeat it? Why did the Torah repeat the Shemitah law? We know it already, says the Rahman. The Torah repeats it 
because the Torah also greatly enhances it, as we'll see. It adds more details over here. The specific nature of the prohibition, it appends to the Shemitah in, in Vayikra, chapter 25, all the rules of the Jubilee year, the Yovel, which are fascinating. And together with the Yovel and the Shemitah, there are other rules that come in which have a relationship to Shemitah and Yovel. So the Ramban says what the, what, the, what the Midrashim are getting at is that Shemitah becomes emblematic of all the Torah. Because the same way Moshe was given many rules back in Book of Exodus, and some of them are very brief, maybe one verse, and the Torah didn't spell them out. So the Ramban says what the Midrashim are pushing for, what they're putting out there is the idea of a kind of oral Torah, Torah Shabbat Peh. The same way that Shemitah was given in one verse back in Exodus 23, but is greatly expanded in the book of Ayikra. So to all the mitzvot, we can presume that the Torah may have, have one line about a particular mitzvah or a particular prohibition, but we should assume that there's much more there than is written in the Torah. That together with the written Torah, there are a set of explanations and a set of questions and a set of directions that the Torah wants us to engage in and to discuss and to take further. So that's the Ramban's thing. So the Ramban says that's why it emphasizes Bahar Sinai, because what the Torah is doing is repeating or expanding that which was given at Mount Sinai. That's the first thing the Ramban says. But then the Ramban said something else. Now, I mentioned, I thought of this when I first started teaching uh, Chumash. I had this very exciting idea. I was very excited about it. And then I went home, I opened up the Ramban, and it's mostly in the Ramban. Here's what the Ramban says. This is actually incredibly important. And it underscores the significance of Shemitah. The Ramban says that the book of Exodus is about a covenant. We are brought to Sinai to enter into a covenant with God. The Torah calls the event of Sinai a Brit, and the Torah calls the tablets, Shnei Luchot Abrit, the tablets of the covenant. And the fundamental, the covenant consists of mutual commitment. That's what a covenant is, two-sided commitment. And the Torah called the rules, Sefer Abrit, the book of the covenant. And we know what happened. The people entered into a covenant. The people said, Nasev and Nishma in chapter 24. But then when Moshe is going up to the mountain to bring down the tablets of the covenant and to get instructions how to build God's temple so that we and God can dwell in the same place, you make a golden calf. We make a golden calf and Moshe comes down the mountain and he smashes the covenant. He smashes the tablets of the Uchot Tabrit. The Ramban doesn't want to say he destroys the covenant. Ramban says, as it were, he destroys the covenant. Maybe he suspends the covenant. And the rest of the book of Exodus, says the Ramban, is the attempt with Moshe as our faithful negotiator and broker to bring God and the people together, which is only possible, of course, has to be represented by getting a second Torah, a second set of tablets, which Moshe does. Moshe gets a new set of tablets, which allows the Mishkan to be built. And that's the happy ending 
to the book of Exodus. Says the Ramban, but that's not where the story ends. The story does not end there because it's true. We now, we now have a second set of tablets we have the mitzvot and the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant. And we even have a Mishkan. We have God's residence amongst us. But the Book of Ayikra is a continuation of the Book of Exodus. Because now there are all kinds of other rules, largely which relate to having God in that presence, relating to the Temple, to the Mishkan, the kind of service one does in the Mishkan, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable how to keep the appropriate distance, and then rules about the festivals, all kinds of rules. And at the end of the, towards the very, very end of the book of Ayikra, the Torah goes back to, chooses one of those laws. It chooses the law of Shemitah. And the Torah says, in this law of Shemitah, which we're about to expand, was given at Mount Sinai. And these are the rules of the Shemitah and the Jubilee year that we'll see next week, etc. That's chapter 25. And then in chapter 26, what do we have in chapter 26? In chapter 26, we have what's called the Tochacha, or the admonition, the blessing and the curse. Chapter 26, it says, if you keep the mitzvot, if you keep my covenant, there'll be blessings. I will walk in your midst. My temple will reside amongst you, chapter 26. But if you fail to observe the mitzvot, that's the bulk of, of Bayikra, chapter 26. If you fail to observe the mitzvot, I will punish you. And the key word is seven times over. Keeps repeating, I'll punish you seven times over, seven times over. And you will be exiled from the land. At the end of chapter 26, God promises, I will bring you back to the land. So we have the blessing and the curse. In our tradition, this is called the tochacha, the admonition. And what's interesting is two things. First of all, in chapter 26, in the tochacha, where the Torah spells out the, spells out the terrible things that will befall us if we fail to observe the Torah, the mitzvot, if we break the covenant. The Torah talks in chapter 26 in generalities. You have your Chumash open, you'll see that the Torah speaks only in generalities. If you fail to observe the mitzvot, the Torah, etc., it doesn't single out particular mitzvot except for one. There's only one mitzvah that the Torah singles out in chapter 26, and it mentions it three times, and that is the failure to observe Shemitah. If you fail to observe the Shemitah years, you will be banished from the land. You want to find that for us? Uh, Kayla, the end of chapter 26. If you fail to observe it, the very end of 26, all these terrible things taking place, keep going all the way to the end. Keep going all the way. Keep going down, keep going. Further down, down, further more, more, more. Keep going. No, now back up a bit. Back, back up a little more. Back, you have to back up four verses. That's it, stop. For example, down, down a little. This verse on the bottom. That's it. You'll be sent into exile. The land will be forsaken. It will make up its Sabbath years. It 
it will make, make up the Sabbath years by being desolate when they atone for their iniquity. For the reason they rejected my rules and spurned my laws. So what does this mean? They'll make up for the years. They didn't observe the sabbatical year. They worked in the sabbatical year. So now the land is going to lie fallow. No one can work it because the people are in exile. So this makes up for the years that we didn't observe the Shemitah. And notice it says, since they failed to observe my commands, Mishpatai, they spurned, they rejected my commandments, Chukotai, and they, and they spurned and they rejected, they spurned, they degraded my laws. Notice that it talks generally about Mishpatim and Chukim, but it singles out only one. In other words, in order to return to the land, what is one of the things that's required is I might say to pay your debts. And you, the debt that has to be paid is the fact that we worked in the Shemitah, so the land didn't, lie, didn't rest. We didn't give the land any rest. So the Torah says, you failed to give the land rest. I'm going to force you to give the land rest by sending you into exile. And notice that it's the only mitzvah the Torah speaks of, so it, it becomes a representative of all the mitzvot and all the mishpatim and all the chukim. Right. And this Torah continues. Yes, and if, if this happens, I have not totally spurned them, rejected them, to annul my covenant. The covenant still obtains. I remember the covenant of old, etc., when I took them out. And the last verse, these are the chukim, Ela, chukim, via mishpatim, via torot, chukim, mishpatim, torot, Hashem Natan, Hashem Beno, Vebele Israel. These are the rules that God gave. Bahar Sinai beyond Moshe, says the Ramban. When you read the Ramban, it's obvious, isn't it? That chapter 25 began and God spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai. And then you have the Tochachad, the blessings and the many curses. And if you have to make up, pay your debts. And the midst of that singled out is Shemitah. And if you pay back the Shemitah years, and there's some repentance associated with that, then I can bring you back to the land. In other Rabbi words- Silver? Yes. Um, the, the concept of the Tochacha also in Kitavo and Devarim. So does that also have something about Shemitah over there or no? No, it has something different over there. I'll get to that in a later session. There it's actually Bikurim. Right. It's a different mitzvah, Okay. in my opinion. Bikurim, mm -hmm. I'll talk about that. But my right. point of the Ramban is, Here's the, here's the interesting point in the Rabbi. I mean, it's all interesting, but here's the point of the Rabbi. That's a very good question about the bar, and we'll get there. Here's the point. The point the Ramban is claiming is that what you have in Vayikra, chapter 25 and 26, is a reformulation of the covenant of Sinai. The formula of blessing and curses, says the Ramban, is covenantal. In Devarim, by the way, as, as Rose said, Rosie said, it's... it's um, it's parallel in Devarim, and there he calls it a bit. These are the words of the covenant. So the formula of blessing and curse is a covenantal formula. And the Ramban said, yes, there was a covenant of Sinai. The Torah is a covenant. Then we violated the covenant. We made a golden calf. Then we get a second chance. But, but this same covenant, it's not a new covenant, but the covenant of Sinai becomes reformulated at the end of the book of Ayikra. And the Torah picked one mitzvah to represent all the mitzvot. And the mitzvah the Torah picks 
is the mitzvah of Shemitah, the covenantal mitzvah. So that gets us, when you read this, I mean, when you read this, you um, begin to reflect upon the significance of Shemitah within the biblical narrative. And it is very striking, actually. And it's, I've tried to, to explain a bit about why Shemitah is a very good choice for the Torah. Uh, for one reason, Shemitah is essentially Shabbat. And Shabbat is the covenantal mitzvah. Shabbat is a covenantal mitzvah in the sense. It reminds us that this is God's world, that God created the world. Therefore, it's God's world. And Shemitah is the Shabbat of the land. By not working on the seventh year, we are reminding ourselves, as the Torah will say explicitly in Bayekra chapter 25, we'll continue next week with this. It's my land, says God. You are strangers and sojourners with me. So the idea of Shemitah is that it's God's world and it's God's land. And therefore, violation of the Shemitah is a very significant violation as a Shabbat in the sense that it's not really taking into account the way one sees the world, the way one sees one's place in conjunction with the world that we interact with, and we, how we see ourselves as people, as human beings, accept our limitations and all of that. So that is, Shemitah is the covenantal mitzvah. It makes Shemitah actually a very interesting topic, probably more so in Israel than uh, in the States, but or outside of Israel, is that Shemitah is a difficult mitzvah to observe. The Torah recognizes it's difficult not to work for the year. And um, the Torah realizes in the book of Devarim, it's difficult that the Shemitah year actually nullifies the loan. In the, in the words of the Torah, if someone borrows money and, to, and the Shemitah year passes, the debt is canceled. We'll discuss that, that's a fascinating topic. And the Torah says in both places, and we know it's difficult. Don't say to yourself, I'm not going to observe it. So that's what the Torah says. And what is the reason Shemitah is such an interesting topic, actually, especially in Israel, but everywhere, is because essentially it's become much more difficult to observe. Now, it's much, much more difficult to observe because, because if you have a, an economy, which to some extent is agricultural, which Israel is less of an agricultural economy today it used to be. But you have to remember that in today's world, it's not that you're selling to the fellow who lives down the street. It's a global marketplace. Mm -hmm. If you don't send your, your fruits and vegetables to Europe one year, you'll never send them ever because someone else is gonna take your place. So essentially from an economic standpoint, it's incredibly difficult to observe the Shemitah. Rabbi and that's Silver? why, uh, yes. Five minute, um, you have okay, a five fine. minute warning Thank and you. I see some questions in the chat. So the reason that Shemitah is actually a, a big deal in Israel, I think it's a big deal in general because it really calls into question the way we see halacha, the way we see law. What do you do when the law is very difficult to observe? And there were different solutions for it. There were solutions for the individual person. Then there were attempted solutions for the, for the people, generally speaking. Now, that my topic is not rabbinic solutions to the problems posed by Shemitah. The most famous one being that of Rav Kook, who essentially eliminates Shemitah as a practical matter. There's no Shemitah. 
the land is sold to non-Jews, it's not my land, but basically it's no Shemitah. Many people are unhappy with that, but in terms of a solution, it's hard to find other solutions, other solutions, I mean, but uh, just do it and take, you know, accept the consequences, that's a possible solution. But in any event, it calls into question, I think, halacha in general, this whole set of rules in general, there's no mitzvah that calls into question halacha the way Shemitah does, which is why Shemitah, I think, is a fascinating topic. But what's even more interesting is that the Torah itself is aware of the difficulties. It's, it's hard, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say it's a hard thing to do when the Torah says, I know it's hard to do. I know it's difficult. Do it anyway. That's what makes it so interesting. But, from, but I simply wanted, that's not our topic about Shemitah as a practical matter. For observing Jews, what do you do with Shemitah? Good question. But, and there are all kinds of interesting pieces to that. But the point of uh, tonight was just to begin by pointing out the degree to which it's actually a central mitzvah. One might say it's the mitzvah the Torah has chosen, and maybe we'll talk about that another time, what to make of the fact that when the Torah picks out one mitzvah here in the book of Ayikra to represent all the mitzvot in Shemitah. Now in the book of Zvarim, as Rosie pointed out, it's not Shemitah. It's a different, in my view, that's a more of a subtle reading, but in my view, the mitzvah in Devarim is a different mitzvah. It's also agricultural. It's not the mitzvah of Shemitah, it's the mitzvah of Bikurim. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll spend some time on that, discuss that, it's a very important point. Why, why here at Shemitah and there it's Bikurim, what does it say about, about, about these two covenants? Why do you need two, two admonitions in the first place? Why is it, what isn't enough? Terrible curses in Vayikra chapter 26, even worse in Devarim chapter 28. Why do you need to? It's a very good question. We'll discuss that. But in point, I just simply wanted to point out the first two places that Shemitah appears in the book of Shemot, chapter 23, and Vayikra, we're just beginning 25, and the great significance the Ramban attributes, and I think it's a very wonderful reading of the text. God spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai. This is the mitzvah emblematic of all mitzvot. So I'll stop at this point. Are there comments or questions uh, of yes. any type? I'm happy to hear it. Yes, um, in the chat from Charles Helsinki, um, he writes, for the failure to keep Shabbat, punishment is individual, right? While for Shemitah, punishment is group exile. Is there a reason for this? Well, I would say that, um, <laughs> I, I would say that, um, it's a good question. I think Shemitah has uh, perhaps broader, um, broader national implications. It's true that Torah presents Shemitah in, 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 in national terms when you possess the land. The possession of the land is a, is, a, is a collective. And I would say that actually the truth of the matter is that whereas Shabbat is obviously a central mitzvah, there's no question about it. But the point, the point that I was making was Failure to observe the mitzvah of the land gets you kicked off the land. <laughs> That's what the Torah say. The consequence of failure to observe the mitzvah of the land, it's as if the Torah is saying the land has to observe Shabbat. It's a Shabbat for the land. You didn't permit the land to observe Shabbat. Okay, says God. Then I'll, then I'll permit the land to observe Shabbat. Since when you are there, it can't happen. I'll throw you out. When? 
when you made up, when the land made up its sabbatical years, then, then you have the possibility of return. That's how the Torah represents it. That's, that's the formulation of the Torah. It's a Sabbath of the land. The land didn't keep it. So therefore, you have to be removed in order for the land to observe its, its, its sabbatical year. I'll come back to this point. I think that's a very interesting way that the Torah has presented us with, with, with Shemitah, Shabbat, Shabbat Hashem. The land shall observe its Sabbath. Not just people observe the Sabbath. Not just the animals observe the Sabbath. Rich and poor observe the Sabbath. But even the land has to observe the Sabbath. To underscore, it's my world, says God. I want all that I created to observe my day. That's how the Torah presents it in the book of Ayikra. So the Shabbat itself is not a Sabbath of the land. You can observe Shabbat anywhere. But the, but the Sabbath of the land can only be observed when you come into the land. And therefore, you're banished from the land to allow the Sabbath to observe its Shemitah, to allow the land to observe its Shemitah. That's how I would, I would formulate it. Food for thought. Um, are there, is there anything else? If not, we'll stop at this point. And next week, we'll continue with... Um, I would say further ramifications for Shemitah. Yes, Kayla. Uh, nope, no other questions from Facebook okay, Live. Okay, very good. So look forward next week, same time, same station. We'll continue with the Jubilee year. And then we'll move to some very interesting, uh, very interesting discussion about the cancellation of debts. Cancellation of debts, what's known in the Talmud of Shemitah Safin. And that is, has some very interesting implications for us, I think. And that applies even outside the land, by the way, the cancellation of debts. We'll talk about that. That's in the book of Devarim. There are two texts in Devarim that are interesting. And then we want to talk about the Jubilee year as well. And I want to come back to what Rosie pointed out about the other admonition, which is not about Shemitah, but about Bikurim, first fruits. Thank you for participating. Look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you, Rabbi Solberg, for a great class. And thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Grisha Live, and on Facebook. We're going to continue our Fallsmon programming tomorrow night at 8 p.m. with a session with Sarah Ziegler and Renana Dean called A Sabbath of the Land of You, Shemitah Ethics and Philosophy. You can find out more information on this class as well as the rest of our fall programming on our website at grisha.org slash classes. Um, thank you again, Rabbi Solberg, for this opportunity to learn with thank you. you. And Good night. See you soon. Good night.